Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and welcome. This is episode 90. Today, a conversation with Yoav Elkayam. So this is another crafty episode, and there's been a bit of a run of those. Uh, I think that when I was finishing my house, I certainly had quite a big burnout at the end of building my house. And the thought of talking about building specifically houses uh, and even the idea of going out to work on, on other projects seemed very very far away from um from what i was able to do and um, sort of what my my brain would let me do at at the end of the project i i think in true classic grand design style uh i ran out of money pretty substantially uh i got quite disheartened i think with just how long things were taking and how i've been building for over a year but at this point and I really wanted it to be done and I could see how close it was to being finished, but that there was still so much. The lists were so long, I'm doing them on my own, so every task takes a long, long time. Yeah, it just ended up frustrating me. Um, but then I did a, a final, final push at the end of July and put myself at the very maximum of all of my, my credit cards and overdrafts to finish uh, with the intention of of spending the next couple of months renting it out uh, as a holiday let, um, which I did. And um, for the the first month in August, uh, I actually rented it out and then I went and camped in the woods, uh, which felt like, uh, I, won't, I won't lie, on the first night, I, I kind of was pretty devastated that I'd just finished my house and 
the first people that were going to get to enjoy it were not me, but um, some some guests, and uh, and the house would never be as perfect again. Uh, but um, quite quickly, in my time in the woods, I actually realised I was just having a blissful time, and there was very little care in my world. Uh, I made a fire and I made coffee and I turned things on the lathe and I made spoons and I cooked sausages on the fire and it was simple, simple life and I loved it. Um, so I think that that very much uh, swayed me towards uh, feeling like craft was something that was really, really important at that time. Um, and as tends to be the case with this podcast, I, I follow my nose uh, sort of wherever is uh, is interesting at that moment, um, and that that took me to multiple green woodworking events. It took me to the Woodland Pioneers of the coppicing episodes we did. Uh, I went to the bowl gathering where I spoke to to John Mullaney the last episode, and then I stayed on in the woods where the bowl gathering is in uh, Brookhouse Woods in Herefordshire, uh, and made a chair with help from uh, from yoav the whole way so yes that's uh, you know the the podcast once again reflects my where my brain is pointing and i always feel a need to kind of justify that when i wander off a little bit into craft uh this episode i think quite nicely dovetails yoav and chris yoav's partner have have built their own cabin to house their growing family you'll hear yoav's story about doing earth floors I think this one is very much a, a craft natural building crossover episode. And I think um, Yoav's methods, I think, are really interesting and hopefully really inspiring. And I, I do mention kind of later on in this episode that uh, a focus of mine has maybe become looking at the way people are doing things differently. Um, I think I think there's also a level of, uh, well, it's not it's not climate anxiety, uh, because I don't feel anxious about what the future might hold. I, I It's climate rage, I think, that the people with the power and the people with the ability to really make changes are not doing anything and they're not listening to experts. And it seems all very business-focused and, uh, you know, business comes first and uh, forgetting people. So yes, I've I've been dealing with quite a lot of rage, um, and I think also this has turned into quite a rant. Sorry. Uh, also, I've been reading Twitter quite a lot, and the the people I follow are, are people big in the building science world, or passive house designers, or people in embodied carbon and things like that. And they all know the way that we could be making huge impacts through the build the built environment the built environment's 40 percent of of global emissions and the answers are really obvious but it's it, uh, it feels like the the decisions at a higher level at the highest levels really uh, never go the way that i feel they should and I, yeah, it's, it's exhausting so step one i think i've quit twitter uh Thanks, Elon, for making that decision really easy. Um, but also, just yeah, I've been giving my my brain a little a little rest from from lots of things. Um, th- that is to say, uh, we are definitely coming back to 
more focus on on sort of building uh, sustainability within the built environment um but yeah we're taking a little meander and uh hopefully you enjoy the meander and you come along with me and you're inspired by it hopefully you just don't think this podcast has gone rubbish but anyway that is a very long explanation as to why we went all craft for a little bit oh before we get into this episode i wanted to say first of all that i have also let the gender balance really slide um various reasons for that um in the new year uh, got lots of fantastic female guests lined up um and really looking forward to to yeah addressing that balance it's something i'm always conscious of and in fact i will be talking about this to one of the future guests so stay tuned for that um also before we get into the episode want to say a huge thank you to the new patrons um and they are both incredible spoon carvers um viv walker who john mulaney was talking about in the last episode and marianne mcginn uh i'm a little bit intimidated because both of those have supported at the level where they are gonna get a cent a spoon that i'm gonna carve them um a little bit of pressure there um also big thanks to joel endersby um who has increased his amount so that he's now at the spoon level as well so look out for that spoon joel viv and marianne i'll be carving that sometime in the new year from some beautiful cherry that's just uh just been taken down by the the power company behind my house um on the patron uh obviously all of the patrons support the podcast. They make it happen. Uh, without them, I don't think I could still be doing this. If you'd like to join them, head to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. And I will be forever grateful. And you get a shout out on the podcast. And yeah, well, once again, thank you to uh, to everyone that supports. You are ace. Um, right. Final thing is that in this episode, uh, just as we start recording, I noticed that the fridge was really loud and buzzing. So uh, we turned it off and we had to remember that the fridge was turned off. So I scribbled on the last question that I had uh, fridge, um, <laughs> which sort of it's, you know, it's a slightly strange end that we uh, we come to uh, talking about the fridge. Um yeah, I had a really, really great time chatting to Yoav. I had a really great time making a chair. We chat a little bit about that. Do check out Woodland Makers for craft courses um, and check out Yoav's work. He's just released a whole load of cups, which are utterly beautiful. Um, I actually have a cup made by Yoav that is my everyday tea vessel and is an absolute joy. Um, okay, I think that's about it. I'm back very briefly at the end. Enjoy Yoav. I make wooden where mainly focusing on turning turned items in the last sort of four years. Um, so cups, plates, bowls and the likes. Um, used to do a lot of spoon carving and that slowly shifted into a different direction. Um, and I was turning many years on a pole lathe, and last year I, I added a electric lathe to the arsenal of tools, and, and teaching, doing a lot of teaching, so same 
the same sort of focus, mainly turning on a pole lathe, but also quite a lot of uh, sort of green woodworking standards like spatula carving, spoon carving, bowl carving, stool making, and uh, dabbling in the tasting uh, chair making as well <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with you. Nice. And what, what is it? Uh, why do you want to make stuff out of wood? Is there some draw that you have? I don't know. It's just so... It was a bit of a calling in a weird way, living, yeah, just living in Israel, being so distant from wood and wood culture, but somehow still falling in that rabbit hole just from, like, giving, tasting it here in England when I was visiting. Uh, so I used to be quite a lot of England just playing festivals with the, with a band. And then in the festivals, like, doing, you know, spoon carving, meeting Robin Wood, seeing him turn, having Jojo around carving a spoon, doing a course of like, I think it was like a plate carving or something random in Glastonbury, just really like standard sessions you'd find in the green fields. And just going back to Israel and like just being completely, you know, looking under the carpet for like bits of wood I could find around. Uh, and because I came back every summer to England, every summer I'd sort of put a few, a bit more focus and time to allow sort of playing with, with wood. And yeah, it just ended up taking over mm. music in a way and replacing it, but also taking the same, same niche in my like heart and in my hands and mm-hmm. brain and, sort of answers many similar things I think playing music and crafting yeah I think it it takes the same kind of sort of almost obsessive uh, mindset doesn't it (laughs) exactly as uh, John Mulaney probably explains yeah (laughs) (laughs) so is there not much of a or was there not much of a scene in in Israel there wasn't uh, any uh, nothing I knew of Back then, I think I met another Yoav, funnily enough, that was doing it. Uh, and I had a friend who was making mainly bushcraft axes and tools uh, up in North Israel. Um, but not so much like spoon carving as, as it looks today with uh, with Oren and Mikey. And, uh, you know, there's a few sort of hotspots in Israel now that really gather a big community. But there wasn't any any sense of community back then. So it was, yeah, coming coming here and realizing realizing there is a sense of community. And I think that aspect of it also drew me in. So obviously after being in Spoonfest for the first time and seeing like 200 people gather around and everybody being friendly and sharing and really good at what they're doing, it, that sort of was the breakthrough of like, okay, there's, there's something going on here that I want to be a part of. Uh, yeah, and deepen my uh, existence within that sort of. Nice. I, yeah, totally felt the same mm. without the Israel bit. <laughs> we met. We met in Sprinters, yeah? We did. Yeah. And the queue. That was it. I recognised your face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I think you said like, I follow you on Instagram. And I, it was the first time anyone had ever said that to me. Aww. And I was so flustered, I forgot to say, I also follow you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, actually, that first conversation, I think you told me about the earth floor you made. Yeah, was I, I probably still living in Israel back then. Right. Did I? I can't remember when it was. First few times I was in Spoonfest, I was still living in Israel. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think you were there, no. I wasn't. Anyway. I'm not a super early adopter. Good. <laughs> Just when it, when it got really trendy. It's much better now. <laughs> Spoons back then were utterly... <laughs> it was, yeah, it was amazing to see, like, you know, spoon in the first couple of Spoonfests, you can spot the professionals because mm-hmm. there were, like, three of them and all the rest were just bad spoons. Whereas now it's the opposite, almost almost the opposite. Like, you, everyone that used to be, like, a top name is, like, suddenly it's, like, all the youngsters and newcomers, like, whacking that amazing spoon. It's an amazing change. But, yeah, uh, uh, the earthen floor... Yeah, that was my first sort of natural building kind of thing. Uh, yeah, lived in a yurt in Israel, and it was on an OSB platform for two years, and it was really hot and really cold. Just didn't didn't make sense and didn't work really well. What's what sort of the temperatures you you get where you were? Um, summers are like forty in the forties. Um, so yeah, between like June and September, you get like. Something standard sum, summer is like 30, 35, and then you get you know the odd weekend where it's 40 degrees and you can't even think about being inside. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially under canvas. Yeah. Even with, you know, that slight insulation that I had and the walls and under ceiling, it was just not... I was fully exposed underneath. The, I didn't have big, big trees or anything. So, uh, yeah, I decided to do an earthen floor. And then took down the yurt, and uh, yeah, I told you the story. Like, put two or three weeks with nothing in my calendar, and then started building a retaining wall that had to be almost a meter high in one, in the high point, and about twenty or thirty centimeters on the other end. And it just took me ages. I did had no idea what I'm doing. It was really <laughs> hard. Invited a few friends to help, which didn't know what they're doing as well and it just ended up being a mess so it took a long time to build that retaining wall to be strong enough to support all the gravel that was filled and then just doing like a batch of cob after a batch of cob and just not yeah it was just so much material yeah uh, uh, started by foot and then after two days uh, got a small mixer Mm -hmm. which sped up things a little bit but it was still like you know you can't really put you know as you probably know you can't do a big batch and it takes a long time and it's really slow spinning and then it's not so fun anymore because it's quite loud and you're not doing the dance anymore so it's like a bit of a yeah after a couple of days of when we already got to laying the 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 mix on top of the gravel even that uh, what i imagined to be really fun just turned into a really hard i think also just the weather in israel and like a mix of a few things made it really challenging and i sort of regretted my uh, <laughs> ingenious idea isn't uh, that every building project? yeah it's just like <laughs> what is it like double double the time and almost three times the money yeah there's a standard sort of calculation if you want to hit the right point yeah more or less money was as i thought but the time was just like yeah four times longer than it took me yeah three months <laughs> uh, but then it worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you were using it predominantly as a, a heat 
uh, regulator. Yeah, to, so it, it kept cool even in the hottest days. And so it obviously it was still quite hot in the yurt, but, uh, you know, walking barefoot on the... And that floor was just lovely. And yeah, I remember many summer days just laying on the earthen floor, not being able to move and just enjoying the coolness of it. So in that sense, it worked really well. But yeah, it was hard work for a yurt, which essentially you know, you, I built a yurt because I didn't own the land and you want it to be sort of packable and then move on to the next spot. But after two years in that spot it had a really good relationship with the landowner and it felt like you know if I'm going to invest that was like I think it cost like 300 quid ish like getting all the stones and gravel and sand Um, so it felt like a good investment Uh, but yeah it's not packable anymore (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's still there you didn't bring it with you no (laughs) yeah I did think about it. My parents keep bringing like a suitcase full of gravel every time they come. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a date and tahini gravel rather than, yeah. <laughs> um, nice. So we've sort of wandered off uh, all over the place there. But uh, the, I'm interested in this. That there's a feeling that I have, which is that... Uh, Craft, there's a there's a link between craft and sustainability, mm. and I don't know whether that's because I'm interested in craft and sustainability, and I'm finding that link, or there genuinely is. Uh, I'm interested to know what you, if you think there's a connection. Do you want to lay down what you think your? All right. Yeah. 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 Perspective is. So I think um, when I'm talking craft, I think I'm particularly talking woodcraft. Uh, sort of the green woodworking world especially mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you know sort of knitting or something like someone described it as uh, village hall craft <laughs> yes uh, but yeah I think the more you get into wood and making things from wood you start to recognize the trees you spend more time in the trees you know you care about their protection you I think it it gets you sort of more into nature mm-hmm. um, and yeah, you protect more what you know, I think. Mm. Yeah. I guess I sort of agree and disagree and, and we can take it in different, two different directions. Like I, I always find it really interesting discovering like, you know, coppicing and woodland management in the UK in the first few years felt like really weird, a weird concept of like uh, you know, the woodland does not need management kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Just let it be and it'll be fine just as it was for many years. So I think that still, I, I now fully understand the benefits of uh, woodland management and coppicing. I don't know if fully understand is maybe exaggerated, but I understand some of the uh, benefits in the, the approach that, you know, uh, people like Toby and Ali and uh, people that are around here sort of, I see in their work in order to use, if you want to use wood, then you need to manage woodland um, in order to be sustainable for the woodland and for the, whoever's producing the, the, pro, the produce. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that still sneaks into my mind every once in a while, like being here in the woodland, in a woodland workshop, like wondering if that's, is it more sustainable than, 
not doing it. Mm. Um, you know, felling felling trees here will be will still be done, and whether we we're here or not, because the farm uses a lot of firewood and the glamping business, and and we use firewood, and then we potentially we just choose you know one tree a year for for one tree a year for chairs and stools, and one tree a year which is ash, and then another cherry tree. Uh, for most of the rest of the crafting, um, so we're not making a huge impact. If if it was only us without the firewood, I think it would definitely. Don't think you could call that a managed woodland taking out two trees. Yeah, there. yeah, it's not managed, but with you know with the firewood, I guess it, it does make this woodland uh, produce quite a lot of material in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you add the on top of that, uh, uh, the dimension of the people involved and the well-being of people and the economical sort of freedom and opportunity it brings me and us as a sort of collective of uh, makers and tutors that come here and ball gathering and all sorts of stuff on top, then I think you get a better... I get a better sort of feeling towards like, okay, this is something that is sustainable. The woodland is still here. A lot of, you know, from surveys and stuff, it looks like it's doing really well. A lot of animals, a lot of bats, a lot of um, things that thrive here and a big community that is drawn to the place. Um, So, yeah, I think there's sustainability for me when it all adds up to the community and the people around it, I think that I see it more uh, clearly. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, maybe like the swapping the wooden spoon by a wooden plastic spoon, by a, not a wooden plastic spoon, that's not right, (laughs) by a plastic spoon. I don't think that's where the change is coming. But I think by having people spend more time outdoors, creating a community that they feel creative and happy and uh yeah this sort of sharing of skills that we mm-hmm. absorb and yeah yeah i think it's quite a rare thing in modern society uh to to share so much mm. i think that's you know it's sort of driven out of our our sort of culture this this existence is is what do they call it just counterculture mm. <laughs> I think that way Spoonfest and ball gathering and events like that sort of sell so quickly I think it's so yeah I definitely noticed the spread of it into more and more people's life that are not in that niche so Mm. much but they still want to be a part of these sort of events and I think those two events and many more obviously uh, are like the proof that it is uh, slowly slowly getting its recognition from people that are outside the circle yeah. and widening the circle. Yeah. And and you said, you know, swapping out, you know, if someone's choosing to buy a wooden spoon over a plastic or a metal spoon, you know, that's maybe not the, the big sustainability key. But I think there is also something in, I don't know, there's some sort of groundedness that comes from mm. connecting with wooden objects uh that i think has a sort of magnifying effect 
you know, it's 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 sort of the you know the the that spoon in your hand connects you to the trees outside and gets you more interested and might lead you down into foraging, might lead you mm. down into to something else. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I'm sure that's the case too. In in, in some ways, you know. I think people are coming on courses and you know split a bit of wood to make a ball black or a spoon black or whatever, and then asking, ah, oh, what you know, five minutes in, it's like, ah, oh, what tree is it? And so it's, it's, does it matter? Yeah. You know, it, what, what difference does yeah. it make? Um, and then you know, answering and going to the woods and spotting, you know, ah, oh, that's a cherry tree, that's an ash tree. Come, I'll show you where this cherry tree was felled, and being able to like walking everything is like walking distance from the workshop and potentially you know trees that last year people saw from within the workshop and suddenly that tree isn't there anymore and it's being used that season i think that's quite a special connection that uh, you don't really get with many other crafts maybe, um, maybe with knitting if, <laughs> if you, you see think, the sheep yeah you <laughs> make the wool yeah i think there's all sorts of, you, it depends how far you want to take each craft and how deep you want to go. And, you know, people buy ball blanks on the internet, people buy spoon blanks from from me or other, mm-hmm. other people. And I think there's a, each each one to his capability and sort of position in the geographical position as well. Yeah. Talking about the, the workshop, Woodland Makers. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, what stuff are people uh, coming here to, to learn? Um, so we do, it's me and uh, Will Sinclair, uh, which is a dear friend and a very amazing woodworker. He's not been able to do much the last few years, but he's been teaching, uh, mainly chair making and stool making here. Um, uh, and some, and then we, I do the bowl turning and some, some carving with the spatulas and, uh, like introduction to green woodworking. And then with the woodland makers, it was really an, uh, a way to incorporate more friends and people that were interested in their craft. So we created like a sort of a bigger name than Will or me, which can sort of, a, how do you say, encompass? Yeah. Encompass. Uh, include many other makers, either on the regular basis or just a one-off kind of thing um so quite a lot of basket making this year um what else do we have hat weaving is tomorrow mm. yeah um tray making yeah just a lot of sort of crafts that none of us really uh do on a regular basis but we're all interested in any anyway, people like john Mullaney. We can do anything, really. <laughs> um, but it's it's nice, isn't it? Like the you were saying about the hat weaving, uh, that's come about because you wanted to weave a hat, yeah. So you put it on a course, yeah, like, yeah, exactly that. I think it's me and mine and Will sort of craft fantasy. Kind of what do we <laughs> want to do, and who do we want uh, to bring over to teach us that thing? Um, and yeah, it's it's been sort of it's not the first year, but it's been a slow a slow start. So every year, just trying a bit uh, to do things a bit better and widen sort of the array of options that are interesting for us. Uh, and I think it's just like it feels like just the beginning. 
And as we, our kids sort of grow a bit, I think we'll have more time to really invest in, in the workshop and what it can bring us and all the people that sort of are involved, whether it be tutors or, or participants. And yeah, this year the feedback was really good. A lot of really successful courses. This is great. Well, I think everyone imagines that they're going to go on a course to make a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think often it's not like that's often not the best thing about going on a course. Mm. Like, what what do you think are some of the other things, or what have you seen other people kind of learn or, or sort of react to that's been outside of the the actual project? Uh, yeah, it, it's a crazy, you know, like to see grown ups back in the, you know, to see capable and competent grown-up people that are amazing in something be so vulnerable and, like, put themselves in a position where they're going to be complete beginners. Some people come here, you know, on a bowl-turning weekend, have never seen a bowl being turned on a pole eighth, never swung an axe, never used a knife. And just, yeah, I think the last course I was teaching, I was I started the opening talk by saying like, or was it maybe the closing talk? Just adding that as a point of, because people said I was struggling. Yeah, it was the end of the course. Like, I didn't think it would be so hard. And, you know, I was struggling. And I, thank you for being so patient for me. But but actually, I, I ended up by saying like, well, I'm in a easy position. Like, I you came to, you know, my my uh, comfort zone essentially I mm-hmm. know what I'm doing and you you became you know so vulnerable and so open to be taught uh, which yeah is really really amazing so I think a lot of people don't appreciate don't expect it to be so hard thinking oh, I'm just coming on a bowl turning course I'll make a bowl mm-hmm. you know asking how many bowls we're going to turn this weekend is a very common sort of first question and then trying to I guess each, each teacher is going to uh, say things differently but for me it's definitely with turning it's more about you learning how to use the tools and then the bowl is sort of a side product um, that being said tomorrow we you know joining a hat weaving course and I just want to make a hat <laughs> <laughs> so it's so it's so weird how you know, you can be on both of those sides, uh, which, but I know I'm going to struggle and I know it's not going to be as nice as Rosie's hats, but I'm not really so interested. I don't think I'm going to be a hat maker mm-hmm. or a basket, you know, a basket weaver or do anything with Rush. So I think that's the two sides of the spectrum. It's like people want to come on a weekend, make the thing and never do it again, knowingly. And some people come maybe with a bit of an open, really want to dive in into something. They're not sure if this is the thing. Mm-hmm. Come and learn the skill and then uh, just have a, like a taster without being too worried about this end product. Um, so when I teach, I'm definitely on that side of, you know, showing the way and which is easy, easier. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah. I think this weekend I'm going to understand the other side of it, of like, I just want to give Chris a nice hat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing you frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen me on the lathe going like, ah! <laughs> I'm, yeah, 
I don't think it was. <laughs> but it being on both sides really helped, and that's why I'm trying every year to do, you know, a course or be dipping my toes into something that I'm not familiar with because it's a good reminder of how people feel all the time mm. in the workshop. It's really humbling and yeah, it's great. It's lovely having like facilitate that learning environment and try and keep people in a good mood through the struggles. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, like, was teaching something you, you sort of set out to do? Was it, or is it, it's come about from necessity or, or, We'll be back after a quick break. If you're looking for all things BMX racing, you found the right podcast. Here at Lane 8 BMX Podcast, I'll speak to the local racer, the national racer, and even the Olympic level racer. I'm talking kids to the weekend warriors and much more. So get comfortable, turn up the volume, and remember to snap on green. Um, I think it went hand in hand with uh, how I got here to uh, to Brookhouse Wood. So I wasn't planning when I started turning. I lit, I just wanted to turn bowls. Um, and then back then there weren't loads of people uh, teaching. So there were a, few, a handful of options. So that always seemed like hmm, maybe there's a there's there is a place there for me if I get better. Mm. Um, and then I think when I was turning three or four years, me and well, me and Will met and decided to we want to get people over to build lathes. So it's, it was like sort of a no-brainer, really. Like I was trying to guide people in the last day after they finished building the lathe how to use the tools and then go back home and and turn. So that was my first experience, which was pretty full on, like a week of. Will doing most of the guiding the lathe build and I was then forging the tools and getting people to turn and it was really I was yeah, I think I was a horrible teacher and, <laughs> uh, uh, didn't have enough experience and w- wasn't yet forging good enough tools and making nice bowls um, but it felt a nice like you need to start somewhere kind of thing yeah um, and then I really enjoyed it it was lovely and uh, I think from that sort of first course teaching, uh, I think it really made me want to be a better teacher and then hand in hand with, you know, improving my own skills and turning nicer things. Uh, and now I really, I love it. And I love the change of seasons and the change of what I do because of the teaching and making combo was I only teach in the summers. Right, so you, we're about to. So it's mid September now. So you're sort of heading into just making territory. Yeah. yeah. So October, I teach like one on one, the occasional one on one. So probably like two or three sessions a month. Uh, but yeah, mainly making up to like April. Really. Nice. So yeah, it's great. Like a lot of people now, I feel after the ball gathering and few more courses now it just feels like so saturated with with people (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which was yeah it's a lovely feeling to have but also it's like okay i'm ready for a quieter time just me and a bit of wood Mm -hmm. Um, sharp tool bit of wood yeah nothing quite like it (laughs) (laughs) um look 
I want to get geeky about teaching a little bit. Yeah. Because, so, uh, I was on bowl gathering course with you, uh, learning plate turning. And I noticed, um, um, go back a bit. Uh, so I always think of teaching as in like, there's, you've got to speak to the, the doers, the thinkers and the, the watchers. Um, it's kind of, yeah, the, the very basic learning styles. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that, well, I've been on certain courses recently where people completely ignored the doers. Like they, they, they kind of felt like because they were teaching, they had to show and talk and then they sort of neglected just letting people play. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that with your teaching, it's very much sort of towards the just getting involved mm-hmm. and, and maybe even sort of struggling a bit and sort of coming through it by by sort of experimenting. Mm-hmm. Is that a, a conscious thing? Yeah. 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 I, th- I think, again, it's like a... Yeah, it's interesting that you... Because it was a weird course that and the ball gathering the ball gathering one um you had quite a, a split didn't you in, yeah in, in talent no, yeah that's not the right word so there was a first <laughs> in a ability. Split, no, <laughs> you can say talent just no, i didn't mean it <laughs> some people are just more <laughs> but yeah there was like complete beginners and then you and jay which are you know uh, very competent ball turners or cup turners or whatever yeah um, so it's not the s- standard uh, sort of, s- I usually do either or really, or I try. And I think I tried, uh, I don't know why, but I thought it would be mostly experienced turners on that mm. course. But obviously it's not, I mean, it looks like it's not obvious that uh, plate turning is a bit more advanced than ball turning. So it was interesting. Um, but yeah, definitely... So I do, my usual thing is just walking around each each one. So gather, you know, gather in the morning, speak about what we're going to do, hand like the basic, uh, my basic approach to a certain project. And then just let people get on with it and do a slow round of walking in between each one and trying to f- figure out where each person is. Mm-hmm. And then I think also part of, Part of it is also figuring out how much people want me to be involved in their own project, which is so tricky. If people don't tell you, it's like oh, I want—I don't want you to touch my thing, mm-hmm. or I want you to help me as much as you can because I'm struggling. And usually, people don't vocalize that. They—you sort of need to see from if you stand next to them and they sort of hand you the tool. <laughs> and, uh, you want me to turn a little bit? Uh, yes, please. Or, you know, people sort of grab the tool quite hard and don't really move from their position. When you go to them, then you know it's like, okay, this person wants to stay on the lathe. I'll try and explain it in words and step away again. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, it's, I love that. I love, like, trying to assess, judge people mm-hmm. <laughs> immediately without <laughs> knowing them. And and I, I love it when, when I get it. Right, and when, you know, the feedback in the end of the day, it's like, ah, oh, I really enjoy the fact that I did all of it and I was struggling and you let me struggle or the opposite of a... Uh, but I definitely get it wrong as well sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah. I always found for in teaching spoon carving, like certainly when you into the axing, mm-hmm. 
there's like a face that people pull when they're like, I'm exhausted and this is going on forever. Well, just make free. it stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, would you like a hand? Yes. <laughs> and I think that comes back many times to what we said before, you know, like some people want to come and make a plate or a spoon and go back home. And some people are there because they want to go back home and make a set of plates for a friend. Mm. And they now want to understand how to do it. Um, so I think it's, it's yeah, the mix of those two things and many other that you sort of, each person brings his own sort of wish to a course. And you need to, as a teacher, I think a big part is assessing openly. And I think that's a good thing to, that's why I love doing like opening talks and closing talks because that's how you know what people want and if you did a good job or not. Mm -hmm. um, like getting, being open to a bad feedback and, or to a not a bad feedback, but uh, constructive, constructive. Um, and then next course, it's like, okay, I won't do this again. Thank mm -hmm. you for saying. And I think every course, I get at least one pointer like that, and that sort of helps me uh, articulate my teaching for the for the next thing. Yeah, thank you for that. Man. Oh yeah. If, if there was a yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's. I think because it was in stark contrast to like the course I'd been on before, mm -hmm. something completely different. Uh, yeah. That, that teacher spoke a lot and demonstrated a lot. So it was like, didn't really let people struggle. Yeah. Uh, that sort of sounds bad. <laughs> it, was it, experiment. Was it, a, was it a day course or a longer? It was actually quite a short course. Okay. Um, yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. No, like, Maybe, I don't know if yeah. you felt, have you ever taught, uh, I mean, you did the building stuff, was which was long, really long really term. Long, yeah. But have you done like a spoon carving, which is more than a day? Not that's more than a day. No. I wonder if that makes a because for me, like a day ball turning is a is a short course. Mm. Um. So I wonder if there's a difference there between having people over for a weekend or a week, or as you know, a couple of months working with the same people where you're trying to build up a skill. Yeah. And a day where you want people to go with something in their hand and uh, and knowledge so how do you how do you find that balance there mm. i guess that sort of changes things as well like laying down a way of teaching one day half a day a weekend and a week will be probably different yeah yeah i hadn't considered that mm. That was a, a total tangent on, uh, on yet, teaching. Yet again. Uh, so we were talking about the woodland makers. Uh, I have just spent the last week hanging out here, making a chair. Uh, have you? Have I? Have I? <laughs> What's happening? Why are you not sitting? Why are you sitting on the floor then? I haven't quite finished it. <laughs> Almost. Can, I think you can sit on it now. Just, <laughs> just a sloppy weave. Yeah. Soon to be finished. Um, yeah, I really, it was fascinating, like in my brain to be thinking about, uh, process and like how much you take in and how process develops. Like it's my first chair. And so I'm sort of concentrating on this and I'm concentrating on that and then design details kind of like mm -hmm. drift off and I've, you know, sort of taken my eye off the ball. So it's been a fascinating process for me to, to really sort of, yeah, be, be doing something new. You're saying that letting go of the um, design 
because you followed essentially you followed Mike's design. Yeah, I think um, there's there's a few elements where I probably would have liked to have done it better and thought mm. about it more. Uh, yeah, I think we said earlier in the week it's like you know it's your first thing, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people that get very hung up on. The thing being perfect. Yeah, making your first thing perfect and never doing it again. Mm. I'd much rather learn how to do many more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you did well. Like, sort of get on with it kind of thing. Make it as nice as you can in a known sort of limit of time. Mm. And then at whatever point you're at. You know, we said in the beginning of the week that it would be good to get it squeezed by Friday. And that's what happened kind Just. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, definitely. It, it was dark, but you know, was, that doesn't matter. <laughs> didn't put a peg in the wrong place. <laughs> but I think, you know, that for me, that's the best sort of, that's how I try and do things as well. Like faff around in a, within a limit, a known limit. Mm. So not just do, you know, do it quickly. And when it's in the right shape, that's it and move to the next step. But, but not, uh, yeah, try and make it as good as I can but also not get too hung up on making it perfect at any given time, not the first and probably not the 50th as well. Yeah. Do you, do you sort of apply that to, you know, developing your craft, uh, you know, trying out new cup designs or something? Yeah, I think that's uh, how I do, still do everything, like trying to get it as good as I can within a reasonable sort of limit. So if I know, if I'm turning a cup in half an hour then I'm taking half an hour to faff around and get it as good as I can and at some point you know I'm not looking at the clock but I'm at some point it's either right I'm stopping turning this because it's not going in the right direction and chucking it in the pile and starting again with maybe a clearer idea or if it's a stat or a design that I'm I'm I've been doing before and it's sort of an iteration and, a, and a, a design that I'm also already comfortable with then yeah it's a lot of like well it's not my best one but I'm happy with it and move on kind of thing mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of trying to make a living from it but also a bit my personality like I just can't be bothered stick you know getting stuck on one thing for too long yeah um, yeah that's why I like small small objects for now mm-hmm. even though I am thinking more and more about bigger stuff mm. like what I don't know like a few things I've been speaking with Dawson Moore uh, Michigan Sloyd uh, on Instagram the guy uh, from Michigan <laughs> right who does Sloyd <laughs> uh, which uh, he, he used to be like a, mainly doing spoon carving and spoon mules and stuff like that mm. uh, he's shifted into chair making and now slowly shifting into a bit more maybe art and free. And yeah, I find it quite compelling. I think I was so anti-arty kind of thing. Mm. When I started, I was really like, no craft. It needs to be real. It needs to be usable. It needs to be relatively cheap. And I, I, I still believe most of that. But also I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in the freedom that maybe not thinking about how it's going to be used. Mm. can uh, can change what I make 
and potentially what I earn as well. That's, I think, also a part of it. Like making a lot of things and selling them for 40, 50 quid against is quite a difficult way of making a living, I think, mm. as a self-employed kind of thing. Um, and every hour, it makes every hour count as well, because in an hour you can make two cups, so why are you sitting around here? Why are you uh, drinking tea? Yeah, why are you stopping? <laughs> Whereas if... Uh, and that's a lot of things that I, from uh, speaking with Dawson, I think, sort of... Uh, made sense to why I'm feeling a certain way. Um, he put it in, in words that I understood and related to. And suddenly making a chair that takes 100 hours, well, you're not going to be counting the hours anymore so much. And you've mm. finished, you know, a long time on one project, but then you sort of get that income and that sort of release of... that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, a bit, um, a bit like selling, you know, building a tiny home for a couple of months and then you know, selling it and then starting a new one. Oh, if only it took a couple of months. Yeah, <laughs> not yours, but <laughs> most even. Um, great. I love. We've totally gone on another tangent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can just chuck that on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Just doesn't matter. Fridge. <laughs> Fridge. 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 We're done. Um, so you've got a thing, uh, the Welcome Project. Oh, yeah. What's that about? Uh, so that's opening up the workshop to people that wouldn't necessarily be able to afford or even think about coming to do a woodworking course. Um, mainly focusing at the minute uh, groups of, uh, through N- two NGOs, um, just um, asylum seekers and uh, refugees. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of it is to do with Chris being behind the scene, doing the phone calls and emails and organising it. And then the ball gathering uh, raffle. We do a big raffle and that money goes into getting these people over, providing the transportation they need. A lot of them are from uh, around Birmingham and Wolverhampton so far. Um, so getting transport here and food and then... Uh, the materials and tuition and essentially uh, some courses we just bought them the space some uh, there were a few groups that they just came as a family or as a group of friends four or five friends came and made a stool and then a family came for a weekend of essentially they just wanted to cook really but we we, made, <laughs> we ended up making a few spoons in stool so people just enjoying just sitting here lighting a fire and cooking together and chatting, telling their stories in a different environment. They're, they're used to just breaking out that, that routine. Yeah. So, yeah, that's something we're, again, it's similar to the wooden makers in the sense it's just starting off. Mm-hmm. And uh, every year we're getting a bit more money and trying to use it in a smarter way and uh, in a more interesting way for everybody, for us and for whoever we're inviting. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. What what sort of reaction do you get from from the people coming? Same like most people that just come here. It's like like how lovely it is to be here, and not in Wolverhampton or Birmingham city centre. Just if on you know most people are you know they have an okay sort of status of life, or they have they have an apartment. They they get. Uh, some support from either from the 
from the government or from the NGOs, they're, they're walking in to enough money to get them through, through their life. Um, but it's just that thing, that constant thinking about that scramble that goes in your in your brain about your situation, about your past story, about what will the future bring. And I think coming here just eliminates that, whether you're you know a asylum seeker or or not. I don't think it really matters. And I think we understand that the more people come here from any background, it's just well, everybody just enjoys it in a very similar way of just that sort of primal outdoor fire carve a stick kind of mm-hmm. thing yeah i mean yeah there is something really special about cooking on a fire isn't there yeah. that is smoke in your eyes <laughs> yeah, going, <laughs> smelly clothes <laughs> going back out into the real world afterwards yeah. and yeah, we had yesterday. It was really funny. We had, a, we had a couple walking through the workshop, smelling from perfume and new clothes, and it's the first time that we all of us felt like, "What? You smell really weird." Like, what is that? And they were apologetic, almost apologetic, by like walking around with uh, clean clothes. Yeah, yeah, a complete role reversal. Yes. <laughs> um. I think I've, I wanted to ask a little bit. I've written nurturing talent. The, the talent appears to be a word I'm using at the moment. Um, but you have, like, there's opportunities for people, isn't there, to sort of come as a... You don't do apprenticeships anymore, do you? Not really. It's, I don't think we ever did apprenticeship yet. No. I think we called it apprenticeship, but I don't think it was really apprenticeship. Okay. Um, so assisting. Assisting. Yeah, because mainly... It depends on the individual, but most of what is required and done here is just assisting on courses. Not so much on the craft front, but more on the facilitating. Right. So assisting whoever's teaching the course to not worry about tea and food, firewood kind of thing. And yeah. then also, you know, citing and chairmaking and helping to cleave if somebody and struggling with some bits and um but i'm yeah it's an area that i'm interested to open up more and more as we become more familiar with just the stat the baseline of running courses and um so i'm really yeah i'm interested in like a long term sort of six months apprenticeship yeah but i don't think we have it yet yeah yeah i think uh I think it will require more input from us, which we can't really give at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of people coming in and having like unofficial tuition in between other things and then letting them use the workshop facilita- uh, facilities and wooden lathes and tools and stuff. Uh, and Rosie this year was really brilliant in many ways. Um but she had a part-time job to go along with it, so she wasn't really available uh, for many craft things. But we, you know, she ended up making a stool and um, and starting a chair. So there are, but it's far from apprenticeship, I think. Okay, but it'll be interesting to open up that mm. venue in maybe next year or 
more likely in two or three years and call it apprenticeship as well. Right. right. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I don't know really where I was going with that. You, you, I mean, your, your thing around the, uh, the company you were, you were leading or partly leading was, was it an apprenticeship? Yeah. I think we shied away from calling it an apprenticeship, but, uh, we also shied away from calling it an internship because yeah. people shouted at us. Yeah. There's just expectations with naming something a specific thing. Yeah. You know, it's like puts pressure on both sides too. Absolutely. I think we ended up just calling them students yeah. because they were learning. Yeah. So, and um, it's that tricky combination of like teaching, getting a walk done and having keeping your sanity kind of combo. Yeah. We might have managed two of those. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to choose which one? <laughs> Sanity was always the last uh, last one to get looked after. That's why I, I think as well here, yeah, it's like so hard finding that balance between all the elements that you need to have a successful apprenticeship or mm. all sides need to sort of benefit from it and it's a tricky balance. So part of my, my sort of focus with the podcast at the moment is showing people alternative ways of life and kind of um you know how maybe like the the sort of mainstream what am i trying to say you've got what i would describe as an alternative lifestyle here um you know you live in the woods uh you've built a little cabin yeah i mean have you have did you ever have a, a nine to five life and I think I was uh, dabbling with it. Like I was dabbling, is that right? Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. I just keep saying things that I'm just, I don't know where they <laughs> Open mouth, yeah. let words yeah. fall out. <laughs> um, not really, but uh, yeah, I was in and out of it for a couple of years back, you know, when I was 18 and sort of, I didn't join the army, so I was expected to, you know, go to work and uh, oh because my... of um is, is it military service yeah is that what's so called I, so i didn't i didn't go to i didn't do service in israel which is mandatory unless you find a way to go out and then so i volunteered for almost a year in a, in a project where i was including like farming with the uh, with kids from rough neighborhoods and then that was sort of my gift to the country and then I was sort of expected from my parents in a you know supportive way but it's like well okay you, you need to find a job and do a thing as uh, as you would um, so I was you know it was when I was really young so the first few jobs were definitely like a nine to five you know I worked as a dishwasher in a restaurant and then as a uh, cooking in a restaurant and then as a bartender for a bit you know just sort of first jobs kind of things Mm -hmm. for a couple of years and I I remember I really remember clearly like one I went to a job interview or was it no it was like first day at a job and then I realized that the boss was just like being an ass and I didn't want to work there then coming back and telling my mom it's like ah that he said, how was it? I said, ah, I'm not going to walk there. And the boss isn't. So, you know, this is how bosses are. This is, this is how it's going to be your whole life, probably. 
and I sort of in my mind saying, "No, it's not for me. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> not for me." <laughs> um, and I was always playing back then. I was deep in the music, so I was like, I was trying to make a way, find a way of making a living playing music. And then it's pretty, yeah. Took a couple of like years of being back and forth in my parents' house, then renting a place, and then making it from money, making enough money from gigs to pay the rent, and then you know having a dry couple of months and coming back to a friend or two, or back to my parents, back and forth. But I think pretty early on it was like trying to run away from that sort of standard mm-hmm. um, and it was always dictated by paying the lowest rent I can I think that was the solution I found mm. and then building a year uh, and not paying rent at all just giving a day's walk a week sooner is that how you you very similar yeah 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 been striving sort of harder and harder to reduce my my cost of living to so to sort of free me up from having to work yeah which, I mean, is a very privileged position. Also, it's, it's just a, an alternative way of looking at things, so rather like living, yeah, it's just like how can I not pay, I start my month with a minus yeah. grand in, in my pocket. So I think that was the main thing since, since, yeah, since I was 22, I think. Nice. And you did um, you did the van life thing. Yeah. Um, how long was that for? So van life was almost four years. Right, a good stretch. Yeah, it was yeah backpacking for uh, two years in England, and then got enough money to buy the van. Did it up pretty quickly and cheaply, and then lived that for no, it was yeah three and a half years, three and a half years. Yeah. And that was sort of when you were transitioning into craft as a yeah. as a career. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right word. But... So I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, the thing that you do, uh, and then ended up parking here with a van most uh, summers, which was really convenient for everybody. Like the farmers didn't mind because I was just in a van and wooden penny. Were happy with me being around and using the workshop and doing some teaching. And then uh, I met Chris uh, at some point in those years living in the van. And we and pretty quickly yeah, got together and sort of decided we want to live live together. And I mean, she immediately just moved into, we met in Israel, essentially moved into where we she was living in for two months there. And then both of us left Israel again. She went back to Germany. I came to England. We met again in the van and we essentially moved in and decided we want to live together and have a family and got pregnant. Uh, and then just before we had Yali, our first daughter, we built this cabin or finished the first section of this cabin, which yeah. is next to, yeah, next to the workshop. Nice. I mean, this, this cabin, uh, where we're sat now, it's very different from that initial cabin. Mm. Like, how is it, how's it developed? But what what was it originally? So originally it was uh, like a 12, uh, 12 square meters. So yeah, four meters by three. Um, cabin that was, we put the frames up 
and the roof and development week, which is like a volunteering kind of week we do in the woods every year. And the purpose of this cabin was uh, a, a cabin for the assistant, for mm-hmm. the yearly assistant. Um, so we got just uh, two main frames, round wood frames and a roof, and then started doing the cord wood uh, wall on the back and stopped there just because it was the end of the season. Then me and Chris uh, lived in the van and sort of thought about uh, maybe we can finish building the cabin and move in there. And Chris said she doesn't want to because it's dark in the woods and the cabin is tiny. Uh, but but then it sort of made more sense than staying in the van. So we finished it off. Uh, so we paid the materials to finish it off and did all the work, thinking we'll just be here for. Uh, six months <laughs> yeah sure just Classic. have a baby <laughs> and then move out right um i think will and penny when we ask them if they think it's a good idea and if, if it's okay and with the farmers they they all sort of knew that it's probably we, we probably won't move out <laughs> uh, we I, I think we genuinely thought we we're going to be moving out and living maybe in portugal or somewhere sunny um uh, so we yeah moved into like a really it was when you came I think there was a, the deck was just being closed and the, yes the cabin was like still dark yeah not a, it was really nice but it was a cave it felt like a small protective cave mm-hmm. and then just before Yali started crawling and standing we extended we closed uh, the deck we had attached to it which is another four by three um, so we had like two rooms. And opened up, and that's when you came and visit. Yep. And that was still looking quite different. And then we added <laughs> added another bedroom. So now we're, it was like 36 square meters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then had another baby. <laughs> and then added another bedroom. So yeah, it started really differently with it completely... No uh, view into the future, thinking we'll ever make this into our home. And it ended up being, yeah, a lovely home. Very different to our ideal. Mm. If we had to sketch anything out, it would be completely different. But I think it just made sense the way we did it and the timing and the money and work load combination. It's sort of, yeah, it's surprisingly fitting us just because it was built in there. as the family grew and our needs changed. And did you, was it literally like, you know, we've got a bit of extra money now. We'll, you know, we can afford to, to put on a, the luxury of a bedroom. Or... Yeah. Uh, I think we didn't need the space. So every time we grew, it was because we felt, okay, this is getting tight. And when, you know, Yali starts running and jumping around or, you know, just having our parents over for dinner or friends, we felt in the beginning, we can't really, have anybody here mm. it felt just so tight so a combination of having money from the season and it was all we always built in the winter so when we have a bit more money and time um so yeah every time it's like okay we can afford this we've got the time and we have the need most importantly to you know we just felt like okay we really need another bedroom now where you know we can walk around in the kitchen and not just sit on the bed while eating all our meals. I suppose the the alternative is that you 
live in something small for much longer while you save up or go into debt mm-hmm. uh, to build, you know, the, the sort of what Dream. you imagine you the space you'll need. Yeah. Do you think, would you recommend this way? Well, I don't know. I think in many ways it makes so much sense. Mm. Like, don't have more space than you need and then add up as much as you need and can afford. Uh, so again, I think it goes back to like leaving, living as cheaply as you can. So I wouldn't want to get in debt for building a place. Um, but it also dictates to some degree you need to maybe we lost the the ideal house we had in our imagination because we had to deal with a sort of reality of of each year mm-hmm. and what it brought money wise and time wise and you know family so you know having a new baby having a limited amount of money means that you need to build a new room in a fairly quick way that means you know for us it was just stud having good insulation but stud walls um what's your insulation uh, super soft oh is that the recycled bottles yeah stuff? it's yeah. really nice really nice to handle uh, a bit cheaper than the wool but i think we're really happy with how it how it uh, behaves and we got one small wood burner that does the whole house and then another uh, the new bedroom is sort of semi-detached in a way so we had an, an, an added another small burner there just to keep just in the middle of the winter use it um, so yeah it's really I think the low ceiling works quite good mm-hmm. so the yeah one burner that super soft low ceiling relatively still small space yeah makes a makes it work really well for us and cut all the costs of we got a tiny solar system we don't use loads of firewood and uh, gas for cooking and stuff and that's that's it really nice is there anything you'd have done differently not have a window in the middle of the dividing wall to the <laughs> i suppose it, that's part of it you know the the expanding process yeah. isn't it so, so yeah having an external wall suddenly becoming an internal wall is quite uh but I think yeah, you know, it's all things that are easily, if if ever it becomes a problem, we can we can change it again. That's the beauty, I guess, of stud walls. Mm-hmm. Sort of take down the cladding, and just change the stud. Um, so yeah, a, f- a few things that we would do different. Maybe not have the. I love the light from the polycarbonate roof. But I would probably save up a bit, and I would get glass if I could. Mm-hmm. Like a, how do you call that? Strong, uh, like strong glass. Strong. Oh yeah, uh, strong glass. Strong what, glass. Toughened. What? Toughened. Yeah, toughened. Yeah. Uh, instead, because it, it, the rain is really loud on oh, the yeah. polycarbonate. I suppose you get a little bit of insulation from it yeah. being that that kind of hollow stuff. But would you? Would it be the same with like a double glazed toughened glass? I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. But, I don't know how they compare I mean it does do a really great job I know you were saying you know it's dark it felt like a dark cave you know this is a very not anymore yeah so we opened the cordwood wall and made that into an entrance because that was the south facing put a big glass door and glass window added a skylight 
decided to stop cladding all the walls in wood, have quite a lot of white, whatever we can. It makes a huge difference. Mm. Yeah, and we hardly use any electricity during the day. Nice. Yeah. And then you've just got a fridge. Yeah, just got a fridge. <laughs> which is amazing after, yeah, I don't know how many years, like seven years without a fridge. It's lovely. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> well, like for someone, if anyone's you got a fridge. I yeah, have. you have a fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, I chose not to use it very much on the boat because it was gas and it was just uh-huh. a bit bit smelly and rubbish. Um, but yeah, the joy of being able to have... Well, what? Have what? Well, um, having frozen peas in the freezer yes. is... Frozen <laughs> like, peas? Is that your... That is amazing. For frozen peas. <laughs> I mean, I don't think mine is any better. But what, what's yours? Cold yogurt. Oh, it's nice. Cold, not like room temperature yogurt. I just, I hate that. But yeah, peas, peas. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, generally I would do such a small shop when I was on the boat. Yeah. It's like you buy enough so that because you're just leaving it either outside or like on the side, that it doesn't go off. And, you know, so now I can actually buy some shopping. Yeah. And same here. And so needing to go once a week rather than like every three days. Yep. Or every so three times a week. Exactly. Yeah. Cold <laughs> peas. Yes. <laughs> I'll remember that next time I'm in the shop. I'm going to buy peas just so Jeffrey can have some next time he comes and visits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's people listening who have not, not ever lived without a fridge yeah. going like, who Don't knew? You're getting peas. peas. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. I think that's probably it. We're going to end on cold peas. Yeah, cold uh, peas. In the fridge. In the fridge. Turn the fridge back on. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You'll be very pleased to know we remembered to turn the fridge back on. Thank you so much to Yoav. Really, really great uh, hanging out. Very, very much appreciated his expertise. Uh, Appreciated him showing me around his cabin uh, and talking so, so beautifully and clearly about about all the processes um, from craft to building uh, to life. So yes, do go and check out Yoav's work. Uh, There will, of course, be a link in the show notes. Um, along with the other people uh, who got a mention in this episode. Um, so they include Robin Wood, uh, Jojo Wood, Toby and Ali, whose uh, company is Say It With Wood. A lot of wood here. 
uh, Woodland Makers, <laughs> um, Michigan Sloyd. Uh, there's a few others that I'll chuck in there as well. Uh, the Bowl Gathering, obviously. Um, do dig into those um, if that's something you don't normally do. Um, there is lots of resources um, to be more inspired by. Um, that is it for me. Uh, I just want to say that the next episode will be the Christmas episode. I've booked an incredible guest. Uh, I'm very much excited to share that with you. Uh, a slightly tongue in cheek, but you'll you'll see next time you see an episode. Uh, I hope you're all well. I am feeling a lot better. I don't know if you got it from my rant at the beginning, but I was feeling <laughs> quite broken, um, sort of mid to late summer. And I feel like life is, uh, is slotting back together again quite nicely. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, everyone. Thanks. And there's be, I've, do you know what? I've had so many people contacting me recently and saying lovely things about the podcast and what it's enabled them to do. And I try to reply to all of them, but if you're one of the people that I didn't manage it, then please don't take it personally. It's just that I, sometimes your messages actually um, really overwhelm me um, in like a really good way. And they deserve a really solid response. And uh, it, it, it feels like, a bit too much to be able to do that um i hope <laughs> i hope that makes it some way understandable uh yeah i've waffled a lot today until next time see you bye